Man, I love that song. I love that song. It is an amazing invitation that is ours every single day, and that is to come to Jesus, to come to Him and find life and rest from all the craziness of your week. That's why we've gathered together. It is good to be God's people together. It is good to begin a new year together, coming to Jesus and to be with Jesus' people. So, glad to see you all here this evening. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, the first book there in the New Testament, probably about three quarters of the way through that big old book, which is a Bible there in front of you. So, swipe or turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be in the middle of that chapter here in just a moment. While you're turning there, I'll tell you where we're headed for the next few weeks as we begin our new year together as the Neighborhood Church. We are going to be looking at our five core practices. You see those lovely little icons there behind me on the screen. Thank you and shout out to Aaron Stone who put those together last year. Whoop, whoop, holla. Aaron does an amazing job making our stuff look so cool, so clean, so nice, We rolled these core practices out in these fancy little icons last year at the beginning of the year, and they were just a way of summarizing and catalyzing what we believe we see in the life of the church, and it's what we are called to, not just this year, but every year and every day in our life with Jesus together. So in the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at each of these five core practices And you'll find if you are a part of our church, you've been attending our church, I would invite you to grab a partnership agreement that Pastor Bud will have out these doors at the info area right over here after service. Uh, Actually, I believe he'll be in the ark, which is the gym. What? I have no idea where these things are going to be. So good luck finding them. They're actually going to be right about here where I'm stepping. Sorry, I'm just the pastor here. I don't know what's going on. Invite you to grab one of those partnership agreements. That's our way of reevaluating our own commitment to this local church each and every year. And it's a way of prayerfully reconsidering these five core practices. And so we invite you to fill that out, to sign it if you've done so before. If you've not, we're going to announce this again and again. But at the end of this series, we're going to have an informal time of coffee with the pastors after the service, February 9th. So February 9th. If you've never signed one of these before, that time is for you to come, to ask questions, to review that document. And then if you've never been baptized, and this is something that you feel called to, that's something we're actually going to talk about a little bit more in a few moments, that time is for you. If you just got questions about this document, and you just got questions about serving or involvement, or you want to grill us on something, now's your chance, okay? So February 9th, at the end of this series, refreshing on the core practices, we're going to have some space to talk and discuss that. That's a next step for you. If you've not been formally united to this local church, that time is for you. So, hope you're there in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be there uh, Right now, I'm going to read in verse 14, and we're going to go down to verse 22. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, 
he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Sounds about right with a lot of our folks around this time of year. Verse 15, it says, He touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And Jesus drove out the spirits with a word. And he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Then verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Then Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, he's talking about himself there, has no place to lay his head. Then another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of God for the people of God and we say thanks be to God. Tonight we are going to talk about following Jesus Following Jesus. That is our very first core practice. It informs every other core practice. It should inform every day of our every life. Now before we get into this text, before we get into that core practice, I want to tell you that I reconnected with an old friend who is not a Christian a few months back. He emailed me. He said, hey man, I'd love to get together. I am not a Christian and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on why you still are. And also, would you give me a little space, because I don't have anybody in my life to talk about these kinds of things or spiritual things. Would you give me some space to kind of talk about why I'm not a Christian and kind of my thoughts on this faith and all these things and maybe ask you some questions? I'm like, dude, this is like a pastor's dream. Hey, person, can I buy you lunch, spend a few hours in the middle of the day talking about Jesus and why he's such a big deal? So I'm like, yes, let's go, especially because we're going to a Mexican food place. So we saddle up. We kind of exchange the pleasantries. How are things been going? How are the kids? Yada, da, yada, da. And the very first question that he asks me when we're getting down to brass tacks is this. What is a Christian? Now, on the face of it, that seems like such a softball question and a softball answer. But the trick is this. That term, just like many other religious or spiritual terms, is a loaded term, right? If I go and grab five people off of Garland Avenue and say, what's a Christian, what's a Christian, what's a Christian, and so on, I would get different answer one, two, three, four, five. So before I tell you what I said to his question, I want to tell you that my answer surprised him. My answer kind of shocked him, which was startling and shocking to me because I thought I gave him the most like bare minimum, simple answer that one could give. My answer surprised him, I think, because it was less about belief and more about a way of life. Now, I want to stop you and tell you how you live is informed by what you believe, okay? If I believe that this burrito is going to be a bad decision, it's going to inform my life to not eat it, right? 
So, how you believe is vital and it's important and it informs the way you live. Your worldview informs the way you move within this world. Duh, check, got it. Okay? But when you're talking about what is a Christian, he's expecting Christian terms. He's expecting theology. He's expecting me to rattle off, I confess and I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ's only begotten Son. All of those things, good, yes, orthodox, things that Christians believe. But I went even simpler than that. And it surprised him. So then he said, all right, dude, if I went and asked people at your church... The same question, what is a Christian? What would they say? Now this is really good because I also meet with like 25 pastors in East Dallas every single month. And we get together and we pray together and we have lunch and we give updates. And man, the awesome ways that we talk about our people in our church and the awesome things that we do and how we do it different from everybody else. Oh man, you'd think that these 25 folks could change the world. But then when it comes down to brass tacks is what we say up here getting lived out there is what I'm saying up here getting lived out in my life. Sometimes there's a disconnect. This guy is trying to sniff it out and say, yeah, but if I go to the neighborhood church and say, what's a Christian, what would they say? Let's try it, y'all. What is a Christian? Somebody venture a guess. To be Christ-like, good. Anybody else? Oh, Ooh, woo dog, that was number two, and you basically did it in fewer words. I would say this, a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Here's what we say in our church, spoiler alert, it's on the packet in our partnership agreement, core practice one, I submit to you to be with Jesus, let's say it together, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus in our everyday lives. Because what other life do you have? But the life that you live every single day, day in, day out, now, today. This is a paraphrase from one of my favorite authors of all time, Dallas Willard. We commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday life. The word for that in ancient society was a disciple, right? A disciple is someone who wanted to learn what their master and teacher says and does And then so that they can go and say and do what their teacher and Lord and master does. Now the reason why belief and life go hand in hand is because if I believe that number one, Jesus is alive, then that means that I can actually have a relationship with him, right? So you have to have some element of belief that Jesus is real, that Jesus is alive, and that the one who spoke so long ago is still speaking And that the one who walked so long ago is still walking, because if he's still walking, that must mean that I can walk with him and follow him. So belief does inform how we live, correct? Everyone shake your head yes. And it should affect not the life we intend to live in 10 years or intend to live in 10 months, but the life that we're living today in everyday life. In just another couple moments, we're going to return back to the passage of Scripture that we just read where we see two would-be disciples, right? We see a teacher of the law that says, Lord, I'm going to go wherever you're going, man, not just across the lake, but here, there, and everywhere. Then we're going to see how Jesus responds. Then we're going to meet a guy that's going to say, well, actually, I need to go and finish some important family business. 
Then we're going to see what Jesus has to say, and it's shocking. But it's always in the context of our real and everyday life. Amen? Now, we say in our church that this invitation to follow Jesus obviously is individual. But Jesus never intended his way to be lived in isolation. One of the threads that's connected our community for years and years is our focus on relationships and community. I think that's the difference, right? A lot of churches do an amazing job at gathering a crowd, and they are amazing, and God uses them, and his word goes out, and people hear it. But our church, we may not draw an enormous crowd, but we've tried to leverage everything on doing this thing together. We've tried to leverage everything on making disciples the old-fashioned way, and that is rubbing up, bump, you know, bumping up against each other. That could have gone a million different ways. <laughs> Let's just go to the next slide. This is our mission statement. <laughs> Come to the neighborhood church. We're rubbing up next to each other. No, that's not our mission statement. Let's say this together so we can keep this train moving. Following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. The thing is this. It doesn't just change us. It doesn't just change the individual. We believe that following Jesus, who we sang about, is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life that is a person, not just a program or philosophy. It not only changes us, it changes the world. But here's the trick, and here's what we just read. Every time Jesus extends this invitation, we have to understand that it costs something. It costs something. There is a cost to a discipleship. There is a cost to leaning in and stepping out of our way and into the way of Jesus. And the two things I think we're going to see tonight is it costs what you're giving. And there's a cost to where you're going. You're going to have to give up something. You're going to have to give up your way to follow Jesus' way. You have to give up your own understanding of the truth of the universe and the world in order to say, Jesus, perhaps you know better than I do. You have to give up your own understanding. You may even have to give up your own comfort, especially when, the second point, Jesus is going somewhere that you would not have gone otherwise. Not to pick on my friends who are not Christians, but several of my friends were Christians and aren't. And there is a marked difference in how they give, serve, talk, and love other people. Because when you're not following Jesus, there is no real compulsion and compelling reason to go and forgive and love those people who really, really tick you off. And I'm not saying that because they're bad and selfish people. Far from it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that were I not following Jesus... I'm not sure that I would have, number one, the capacity, or number two, the desire to forgive and love and serve those who are unlike me, who dislike me, and who just frankly, I don't even want to think about. But you know what? I believe that Jesus transforms us and gives us opportunities to take these uncomfortable steps, not because he wants to make us squirm, but because he wants to make us new. And in those little deaths of saying no to ourself and yes to Jesus, in a lifelong relationship of following in his footsteps, we find ourselves transformed. And when we say yes to him, it transforms the world around us. Because as we prayed for those people earlier that Pastor Kathy talked about, us 
praying for them and supporting them and the work that they're doing is having a ripple effect the world over because they said yes to the cost of discipleship. And we see every time Jesus makes this invitation, it costs something. Now to get back to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to first look at those kinds of things that we're giving. What are the things that we're invited to give up? That's what I want you to think through and sort out here this evening. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, if y'all looked, you would count 10 instances or 10 accounts of Jesus healing somebody. 10 of them in two chapters. 10 of them. And remember last week we talked about the when in the story really matters when you're reading the Bible. Right there, smack dab in the middle of these 10 healing accounts, we have these shocking responses to these two would-be disciples where Jesus lays out the cost of what you've got to give in order to follow Jesus. Now, within these 10 healing accounts, I think the juxtaposition is important because if you walked around and lived in a world where there was no CVS and no Care Now and no Baylor and no Medical City, when you heard the news of someone going around and healing, and especially someone going around healing without this big ritual, and there were people like that then, or without this big incantation or, you know, chicken necks or I don't know what you see in the movies, You name it, the sky's the limit. That stuff was happening in Jesus' day. But if you looked at those ten accounts, you would see like what we read earlier, where with a word, demons would would flee. And just touching Peter's mother-in-law's hand, she's released from this fever that had her bedridden. Earlier in chapter 8, you see the faith of this centurion. And man, the person that he was trying to heal wasn't even in the zip code. And then you see someone touching Jesus and power leaving him. What you have, instead of this walking emergency room or shaman, what you have is someone who just exuded and bled out God's life and light and presence to all those who were broken and desperate. So no wonder he drew a crowd. Are you with me? Sometimes I think we have this image of like, it's just Jesus kicking it with his 12 buddies. Try, there was 12 within the first circle, and then probably 30 or 40 that were kind of supporting him. Women that were helping um, him, supporting him financially, supporting him, cooking, and trying to negotiate, right? And then imagine all the other looky-loos who just wanted to see what he's doing next, okay? You think Taylor Swift has a big entourage, I watched a few minutes of her concert on Netflix that was here in Dallas, and I'm just looking at that stage, and I'm like, this costs a lot of money. And then Amy goes, that's why her nosebleed tickets were $300. She had an entourage. She's rolling deep. Jesus was deeper. He had hundreds of people, and they were wanting a piece of him. Now, we start to understand this world that we're living in, but I want to think back to our own self for a minute. And I want you to think about your morning routine, okay? So let's leave the world of Jesus and his entourage for just a moment and think about your morning routine, okay? Because I want us to get into these shocking things that Jesus says, but we need this kind of context to understand what he's asking us to give up. 
Now, for the Wood household, it starts on a given weekday, especially now that we're back in school, about 6.15 or 6.30. Some of y'all that are up in the 5 o'clock hour, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. 6.30 feels rough for the Woods, okay? So just to each your own, I'm talking about me for a minute. You're thinking about you. For us, it starts at 6.30, and then it's a dead sprint for one hour. We kind of try this well-oiled machine where Amy does clothes and hair, and I do breakfast and lunches. Then I've got to do coffee for her. We've got to negotiate a couple showers in the middle of that. Then usually by 7.30, we're out the door, and we're going our separate ways, okay? It's a well-oiled, finely tuned machine. Are y'all like that? Are y'all just crash landing cannonball out the door? Y'all those kind of people? Okay, y'all must not have kids or going to school. I don't know. But if you don't have kids, you still got to be somewhere, most of you, yes? You got jobs. You got to drive. I don't have to commute like a lot of you, except a handful of times. It's no joke. Now, let me ask you a second question thinking about your morning routine. Even if you're sipping the coffee and reading the paper, you do you, and it takes a lot to disrupt this thing, yes? Now, When my dad texted me this morning and said, did you see the Mavericks game last night? Not super disruptive. Luca had 29 points. Hey, things are looking up. Hallelujah. It's nice. Not disruptive. Now, 6.30 in the morning, trying to get out the door, and you get a text or a phone call. Someone's sick. Someone's in the hospital. You know, whatever you had that was important, all of a sudden becomes less important. Yes? You know and you've lived in those moments where you're going one way and all of a sudden everything changes with one phone call, with one text, with one invitation, and all of a sudden what was once urgent and important like getting out the door and going somewhere or going to school all of a sudden gets reordered under something that is more important, more urgent. Yes? That's 2019. Now, let's... Step back into the world of Jesus. Let's think back through this entourage, the 12 disciples, a few people supporting, and on that second tier, and then all the looky-loos looking at this healer, wondering what he's going to say and do next. Their morning routine, if they were a good Jewish person, was to go to bed at night because they viewed time even differently. The start of the day is at the end of the day in our Western time. So at sundown, the day begins which is really fascinating if you think about it. But it makes sense when you read certain passages in the Bible and you think about even in the text that we just read. At sundown, many came to Jesus to be healed. Did y'all catch that or read that earlier? That was because the Sabbath ended, so now let's kick the doors open. We got stuff to do. A new day has begun. Now, a good Jew would begin his day at the end of the day going to bed and praying the Shema. Y'all say Shema. Y'all know the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word for here. And it's here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. This should sound really familiar to you, especially if you participated in a class that we did several years ago on the greatest commandment. Jesus took this verse and mashed it up with another Old Testament commandment we're going to talk about next week. And he mashed them together, but it originated way back when, and if you're a good Jew, this is what you said when you went to bed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Y'all have heard this, yes? They didn't just pray it at night. Then they slept, and when they woke in the morning, you know what they did in their morning routine? They what? Same thing. When your eyes open, you say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. And you continue in this prayer. Some rabbis in Jesus' day that had their own disciples and their own crowds taught that whatever you do in the morning with your paper or your coffee or your shower, the most important work to do is to pray the Shema prayer. Now, why am I talking about all this? Number one, because there is something about God that wants our everything. Hold on to that. But number two, as important as it is to pray this prayer, the rabbis would concede, stay with me, if something as urgent and important as your father dying happens, you can table the Shema. There's another commandment in the Ten Commandments. It says, honor your what, children? Father and mother. A huge responsibility of a good Jewish person, regardless of their morning routine, was to honor and respect and love and care for their parents. If they were to do that in life, it was a huge thing to do in death, especially because there are other laws that said you better bury that person within 24 hours. Now that starts to take shape and make sense when they were like hurrying to get Jesus off the cross, hurrying to get him into a tomb before the Sabbath. They only have as much time. You with me? Are, are we connecting some dots? So, this is important to pray the Shema. But what is more important is to bury a parent, especially if you're a man. Now, I want to return to our would-be disciple the second one we met, the one that says, hey, I've got to go bury my father. I'm buying what you're selling. I'm hip to what you're about. I believe you got some mojo, Jesus. But first, let me go and bury my father. This is where everyone expects in this entourage, Jesus to go, oh yeah, dude, totally, I got you, man. Sorry for your loss. Enter Jesus, the shock jock that he tends to be, waking us up to something new that's going on. Jesus does not say, it's all good, man. I'll catch you later. Text me. We'll meet you on the other side of the lake. No, no, no. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I want you to feel how shocking this is. And it's still shocking. I preached follow Jesus last year and I used like all the verses. So I was dreading this story because this follow me shocks me. How many of you would miss a funeral for someone you love so dearly? You would rearrange everything to get there, right? You miss work and your boss says, okay, I get it. Jesus does not say, okay, I get it. Shocking. 
Yes? You would fly. You would get there. You would figure this thing out as best you can within your power. You would reorder your life to get there. And Jesus says, no, it's now or never. You reorder your life around me. Shocking. If you're not shocked by this, I've done a bad job in the few minutes I've tried to set this thing up. Shocking. Shocking what Jesus does. But the life that Jesus invites his disciples into is nothing short of a radical reordering of our entire life. Period. And it feels right and good when it's in the spiritual sense. It feels good to say that when I'm at the neighborhood church on a Saturday evening. It feels right. It feels entirely different when you write a check because he's reordered your finances. It feels entirely different when someone slights you, when someone offends you, when someone upsets you, and you hear this whisper in the depths of your spirit saying, don't retaliate, turn the other cheek, bless them and forgive them, there's life here. Your way could exacerbate things. There's life here. That's disruptive. That's shocking. When Jesus says, whatever business or family relationships you have need to come second to following me, that's shocking. And I think we need to understand that what we mean when we say yes to Jesus is that everything, our wants, our ways, our work, fall in line behind Jesus when we say yes to him. When you say Jesus is Lord, you say, I'm not. Y'all heard the phrase in business and things, a yes to something is a what? No to something else. A yes to Jesus is a no to your way. So emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, fill in the blank, relationally, everything falls in line behind him. And y'all are saying, yes, we've heard this. And I'm saying, yes, but I need reminding of this. So that's why I'm saying it. Because I talked recently with Pastor Larry here at Freeman Heights. And we were talking about pastor things. I don't know what we were griping about. We were griping about something probably. And he was talking about a few people in his church that he loves, and they had just had a conversation. And he asked them the question, he says, what do you want to teach your kids is the most important thing in their life? And they said, Jesus and church and being with God's people. And he says, great, but you are here because I haven't seen you in three months, and you're talking about how we're just so busy. He says, do your schedules bear out your desire to make Jesus number one. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to create space and make time for it. You will make time for what you value. Your checkbook will make it work for what you value. So let's not say, yeah, Jesus, I'm here, but then our lives bear out something different, which I think gets to the cost that ultimately what we're saying is we are asked to give our whole life to Jesus, entrusting it to his care and letting him say what goes. And it feels like a death. And it is a denial. 
But time and time again, where you see the deep call of Jesus, you also see the deep life that's on offer. Recently, I've been writing down in the Gospel of John and in the letters of John, the letters of John at the end of your Bible were written um, decades after the Gospel of John by presumably the same John, the one who was with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And a study that I've been trying to do is write out all the times he talks about eternal life. And I've just got this laundry list where he almost unequivocally draws a line from eternal life to Jesus. Jesus himself prays, Father, and this is eternal life, that they know you and the one you sent, me, Jesus. Then he says, and this is life, that you know Jesus, Jesus equals life. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying a no to the other things that are not life. They can be good, but they are not life. When this relationship or this value or this identity or this thing becomes number one, when it fails and when it doesn't create life, you're going to be left with a mess on your hands. That's why you put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. We don't have time to play it, but the video that I've shown before and that we show to all our baptismal candidates, y'all remember the sweet little stick figure guy that starts saying, this is a typical life, and I've got all my little pieces over here. I've got my this and my that and my extracurricular and my hobbies and my that. It all orients around me and my time. What happens when you say yes to Jesus is you cross over from a me-centered life to a Jesus-centered life. And all those things begin to orbit around him, even you. And it's hard and it costs. He's asking for our whole life so that he could give us life. Now here's the deal. This dude's request, let me go bury my father, honestly, probably, could have been a, he's probably, maybe, I think he's going on hospice, he's kind of old, so I don't know, I'm like three miles from my house, so I should probably be close, maybe he'll be dead in a few months, I don't know, maybe happening pretty soon, hospice kind of thing. Jesus says, no. It's now or never, follow me. And I gotta tell you this. This one foot in, one foot out, half-life is not the abundant life that Jesus has offered us. And if your primary experience with Jesus is on a Saturday for an hour and 15 minutes or a Wednesday for two hours like every other week or once a month, you're missing out on the abundant life on offer with Jesus. It's lived out in community, but you spend most of your time apart from these lovely people. There has got to be some way in which you're at the feet of Jesus, sitting with Jesus, trying to connect with him because he's there every day with the same invitation, come to me. But I gotta tell you this, the longer that I've been looking at Jesus and the longer that you follow Jesus, I've just observed this. This net gets wider of who's invited. The net is getting wider of who's invited and where he's at work all throughout here in the neighborhood. But the challenge of Jesus gets deeper, okay? The net is getting wider of the crowd and the entourage invited, but the challenge goes deeper, 
The challenge goes deeper into your soul, deeper into your heart, beyond religious practices, and it goes into a deeper place where he, he's going to start to picket things, where you think you're your first and best, you know, J- Jesus is going to try to dismantle some things and disrupt and dislodge some things. And like we talked about last week, he's going to stretch you, and he's going into uncharted territory. And that challenge is deeper, even than the urgent and important things. But what Jesus was doing was so important, so urgent, that it required a step every day in the only life we have to give. And that's the one we're living right now. And we've got to zero in and pay attention to go where he's going, but it's still going to cost us. Which is the second and final brief piece, where are you going? Where is Jesus going? i got to tell you, it's somewhere costly. I don't want to leave my man, our first would-be disciple, that said, Lord, teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. There's a Chris Tomlin song that I sing for kids. Where you go, I'll go. Who you, you with me? That's from Ruth. We love to talk about these things. Heck, I sing songs every week. We sing songs here. I surrender all, everything I have, and these are good songs to sing. But do we know what we're singing? I know y'all are about to sing I Surrender. That's why Kelly was just looking at me. (laughs) Oh, we better be thinking about what we're singing. This man resonates with me because this is youth group worship singing Adam. Oh, on Sundays and Sunday nights, man, I'm singing. I'll go wherever you go. Yes and amen, except on Monday I need to do me some meat. Man, I feel for this guy. But I think what Jesus does here is, is being real with him. And he owes this to this guy because I think we need to understand that Jesus' invitation is not a luxury cruise. It's a life of service. And we need to understand that Jesus is not exactly looking like a victory march. It's looking like a life of suffering with the world because when Jesus was healing, it looked amazing. But Matthew, upon reflecting, quotes from Isaiah 53 that is called the suffering servant. And this man, Jesus, marching down into Jerusalem is actually marching into a cross because he will bear our sins, our sickness, our iniquities, our troubles, and he's saying, are you coming too to go bear the sins and the shame and the hunger and the brokenness and the sickness and the thirst? Are you gonna go and put your hands on these people and ask for God's kingdom to come? Are you gonna go and give them the clothes off of your back that they don't have so that the kingdom might come? Are you going to go and feed them and love them and listen to them and speak with them and look them in the eye because that's what I did and I'm inviting you to the same life and it's going to be hard. And this is the trick. Right before this interaction happens, Matthew tells us he's going to the other side of the lake. If you're following along in Matthew's gospel, you see Jesus basically just zigzagging around Capernaum. He had a home base there, but he was kind of just on the road around this corner of Galilee and that corner and blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, he's going to a place that perhaps they had never been, and all of a sudden, he's going to say, by the way, I don't know where I'm sleeping when I get there. You still want to come? 
Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What Jesus is saying to us is this. You cannot follow me and expect to stay in the same place. And he means on your level right now, those things you're saying, you're praying, you're posting, you're feeling, you're thinking, that hurt, that habit, that hang up. He loves you too much to leave you there. He's inviting you onward. Let's go. He loves you too much to continue to hang out with these people and not to talk to that person and not to go and say yes to that pull towards service and love to leave you there, but we've got to get going with him even if it costs us our comfort. Where is Jesus going? Somewhere dark so that he can bring light. Where is he going? He's going somewhere where there's desperation so that he can bring hope. Where is he going? Where there's brokenness so that he can bring healing and he's asking his disciples to come with. Church, are we going? Man, I'm racking my brain and praying and wondering, where are we going right over there? I I am convinced of this. We cannot expect to fill the church with the neighborhood. We've got to fill the neighborhood with the church. And I love this instance that Eugene Peterson talks about. I preached on it maybe a few weeks back. I don't know. I think about it a lot, so I probably said it a lot. But he talks about in the resurrection accounts, Someone says to this band of disciples, he says, the risen Christ has gone ahead of you into Galilee and you will meet him there. Let me tell you, the risen Christ has gone ahead of us into those apartments and those streets and that neighborhood there and with those children and with those kids and with those people that we see every third Saturday and he's saying, where are you guys? Are you coming? And I can't do it. I can't figure it all out. I'm not equipped to do it that well. I need you. We need each other. This is how we're going to do that. But we cannot expect to follow Jesus in 2019 and expect it to look exactly the same. I want to close with a story from a man named Robert D. Lupton. He's a white guy that had a white family. That's how that happens. And uh, (laughs) he was living in a white part of town in an upper middle class suburb. And God called him to a place that was uncomfortable for him and his family. That was into the inner city uh, right there in the heart of Atlanta. And this was decades ago. And so he has written a book called Toxic Charity that's really um, still kind of a standard But he wrote this little book that I love, and it's called Theirs is the Kingdom. It's called Theirs is the Kingdom. Uh, Before we hit that slide, let's go back to my man sleeping on the thing. I just didn't want people to read that before I did. And this little book called Theirs is the Kingdom is reflections and stories on a life spent in uncomfortable spaces and places. But he finds Jesus there. That's what he does. He finds brokenness, but he finds Jesus there. And it's a wonderful thing. If you want to read this little book with these little stories, talk to me. I'm going to buy it for you. I'm serious. I love this book. I think it will change us and change our church if enough of us. If all y'all come up to me, I'm going to have to talk to Pastor Bud about putting it on the church card instead. But if a few of you want it and you're going to read it, talk to me. It's amazing. In one of these reflections, he entitles, Foxes have holes. So Robert wakes up and he's going through his morning routine, just like 
all of us, and we talked about it a moment ago. He's up at 6 a.m., he has an early meeting, and it was a freezing, frigid January morning. And he writes in this book that the first thoughts were how unpleasant the night's sleep before was. Because he had the thermostat cranked too high, so it was hot. And he started the night with two blankets, and y'all know what happens, right? So you wake up, and you're like, ugh. And then you throw off one blanket. Fast forward an hour, now you're freezing, so you go and grab that other blanket, and you do this. And so then he was thinking about how his problem was that he was too warm, okay? Then he goes and gets in a hot shower. He shaves, he puts on clean clothes, and he does what he does every other day. And that is walks from the door to his car, right down the sidewalk, just like every other day, except today wasn't like every other day. As soon as he puts his hand on the car handle, he freezes and realizes there is a man in the driver's seat behind the wheel, asleep. Instantly, he is thinking, I don't know if he's dead or dangerous, but his impulse was to clench his fist and get ready for a scuffle. But in the opening of the door, it startles this man awake. And immediately, with his fist back, Robert looks and says, what are you doing in my car? And finally, this man kind of collects himself and slurs out this phrase, I'm not in your car, sir. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're in my car. He goes, well, I'm not in your car, sir. As he's shuffling out of the seat, maneuvering past Robert, and he begins to walk up the sidewalk and stumbling across the yard. Meanwhile, what are you thinking? You're, you're sitting there. You're still amped. You're still ready to go. So he watches this man stumble, repeating, I'm not in your car, sir. I'm not in your car, sir. Not in his right state of mind. Robert gets into the car, closes the door. His heart's still beating. His heart's still racing. And he started to think about the difference between their nights, right? So here's Robert waking up saying, man, I was too hot. (laughs) And then he starts to think about the man that probably had something, too much to drink, or he's doped up, or he's doing something, and he finds an open door and still spends a frigid January evening in this man's car. He begins to think about the dichotomy of their existences at that moment, but then he writes this. Why should it be, I wondered, that I am so concerned about sleeping too warm when another human being equally loved by the Creator barely survives in a cold car outside my door? Why is it that I have a secure place to rest and be restored when this man and so many others like him has no place to lay his head in peace. The Christ, the despised one, the one from whom we hid our faces. Pause, that's from Isaiah 53. Spoke softly, deeply in my spirit. It was the voice of one who himself claimed to have no place to lay his head. I began to weep. I remembered my clenched in my compassionless expulsion of this stranger from my life. I cried in sorrow for a broken man whom I had sent off into the cold, unshowered, unfed. And I sorrowed for the one whose heart is not yet sufficiently broken. 
whose heart hardens too quickly against the call of the Lord among the least of these. Then he says, I am sorry, Lord, for turning you out into the cold. Thank you for using my car. There's a great cost when we say yes to Jesus. There's going to be something you've got to give. It's your whole life to Jesus. And there's somewhere it's going to cost you where you're going, and it's where he's going. You've got to give up your direction to go where and to whom Jesus goes. So I want you to reflect on these three questions. Would you write these down? Would you take a picture of this screen? I want you to not move too quickly past this. If something pricks your heart, I want you to consider these questions as we sign these partner agreements, not just because it's a new year, but because are we really saying yes, Lord, to you and your invitation to follow? These are the questions. What is the cost you're struggling to pay? What is it you just can't release? Secondly, where are the places you're invited to follow Jesus? Maybe that's a who, maybe that's a where, maybe that's I don't know, somewhere uncomfortable. And then third, what areas in your life need a radical reordering? What do you need to say no to so that you can say yes to Jesus? What do you need to say yes to because Jesus has invited you? And you need to pay your intention and attention there. These are costly questions. These may not be, let's all talk about it on Wednesday, but I am inviting you on Wednesday after reflecting upon this to share that deep place in which God is inviting you. But I want to leave you finally with this final invitation we sang a moment ago, and it's in the message. So let's use this as our closing prayer. Are you tired Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Just keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Friends, when you give all of yourself to Jesus, Jesus gives all of himself to you. Amen. All right. If everybody could stand now and receive the benediction. Okay. (laughs) May you choose to live fueled by the hope of Jesus Christ and his kingdom rather than be held captive by fear. May you choose to embrace the way of the cross and freely give away your power for the flourishing of others. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may your image rise in each of us so that we can offer and receive love in the most unexpected people and places. Amen. Go in peace.